From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy our program, please rate our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this podcast. It really helps us grow. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Catherine Cheng. She's a clinical instructor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, and she's a national speaker on physician health and well-being. Her medical interests are stress management, social and emotional aspects of health, and health education. We had a great, wide-ranging discussion about wellness and its flip side, burnout. As you'll hear, Dr. Cheng describes how, as physicians, our coping mechanism is often to work harder. That's how we got through med school, residencies, and fellowships. But the institutional and personal challenges physicians face cannot be solved by working harder. Dr. Cheng articulates how small steps, both institutionally and personally, can make a big difference. I spoke with Dr. Cheng after she gave a grand rounds talk here in Madison entitled, We Are the System, From Personal Resilience to a Culture of Wellness. We'll have a link to Dr. Cheng's full talk on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. Enjoy. So, Dr. Cheng, thank you so much for coming up to Madison to join us, uh, making the journey up from Chicago. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. You just gave a a great grand rounds that there's no way we're going to be able to recap in the short time we have available for this episode, but everyone should definitely go online and watch about wellness and, and the culture of wellness. And I think that always the sort of flip side of wellness, right, is burnout. Maybe just tell us a little bit first how that came to be an area of interest of of yours. Mm. I think it started back in my second year of practice when I was feeling really upset that I was going to be stuck in Chicago for the rest of my professional life. And one of my friends suggested that I get a life coach. So I stopped paying my student loans for about six months and invested that money in talking with a life coach once a month. And it was life-changing. Basically, the practice that you learn from a coach is to stay in curiosity and to be aware of the stories that you tell about your adversity Mm. and how you can adjust your narrative so that you can come to multiple solutions more easily and you can find your way through adversity with a little less suffering. And then people started talking about burnout maybe four or five years ago and people because I talk about coaching and I talk about how I use coaching techniques in my practice, people asked, and I like to do public speaking. I got invited very locally to do a webinar on burnout and physician well-being, and then it just sort of grew from there. I, people saw my talk, people resonated with it and asked me to talk again, and so each time I do it, it's to a different audience, and so I get to learn more, and I read more, and the community around physician well-being has grown exponentially in the last few years. And so when you go to the conferences, you come back with this like hippie, you know, conference high and you're connected with people and you just keep learning more and the, the, the connections just grow and it's just been really fulfilling. So this now is, is a big part of what you do. Yeah. My work in executive health, my work in integrative medicine, sort of leadership and physician well-being, it all... It's all parallel because I think how we do anything is how we do everything and how we approach our relationships in one arena very much mirror how we approach it in other arenas just because of who we are. And so if we can be more aware and more intentional about all of it, we suffer less 
and we can make a better impact on the people around us. So you can really approach wellness from the perspective of a physician because you are a practicing physician, but also from a sort of leadership role, like how do you design a system? And to me, that's always been the difficult thing about our discussions in burnout. I think we're obviously at an early stage of trying to understand this phenomenon. We're we're only now discovering incredibly pervasive Mm -hmm. in the practice of medicine and only getting more so. On the one hand, there's sort of like the personal like resilience factor, right? How do individuals learn to cope in what is a very hard job in what are increasingly difficult systems that are not like well set up to keep you happy, right? Right. So how do you as an individual make it work? Mm -hmm. We've done more with that. There's like yoga retreats and people are trying to think about like how do you like get enough sleep, right? And then there's the system issue, right? How how has medicine gone from being this sort of noble priesthood of like (laughs) people who are just completely devoted to stressful jobs and find that incredibly fulfilling, which is at least how I imagine it used to be, right, in sort of the Marcus Welby era and before. Increasingly, you hear people say, now is it like they're widgets and giant corporate machines, and how do we fix the culture and the systems of medicine so that people don't need to spend all their time trying to figure out how to be resilient within it? Right. That's such an interesting (laughs) question, and there are so many layers to that. You will hear people say physician well-being shouldn't have anything to do with personal resilience. We are resilient people. We couldn't have gotten this far if we weren't resilient. Blah, blah, blah. I understand that perspective, and I think there's validity to it. And I think that, like you were saying, the system has changed so much that sort of the physician's model, I think, for coping is just work harder. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we got through residency. Just work harder. Keep doing it. We can, I can do this, you know, for X amount of time. And I think there are a lot of practices that aren't taught to us in res- in our training that are now more and more important, such as coping with uncertainty, coping with loss of autonomy and control for a prolonged period. It used to be that residency was the hardest part of your medical professional life, right? right. Where you have no control and you're not sleeping at all and everybody has you know, authority over you. But when you finish residency, then you could be in your own practice, have control of your schedule, you know, negotiate your own rates, whatever, with payers. Now, more and more, we're being employed. So we have all these regulations imposed on us that we have no control or no voice to change. And so coping with that is not something that is innately something that we have as physicians. And I would argue that most humans have are challenged to cope with uncertainty and things like that. And so, yes, this idea of personal resilience I think has to be thought of very broadly Mm -hmm. and also very, at the same time, very personally. Like, I am resilient in these ways, and I could improve my resilience in these other ways. And it's not the same for me and for you, and it's not the same for maybe internists and surgeons or anesthesiologists, but just paying attention to it and understanding that, hey, there are ways that I could get better. I can own my own stuff and continue to improve how I do things. And there's also a systems thing. And I, I grapple with that a lot because there are multiple levels of systems. There's my office where I practice with my few partners, you know, and then there's the institution that I work in or the department that I'm in, mm-hmm. in the institution that I'm in, in the profession that I'm in, in the country that I work in. Right. There's just, where do you start? And I think you made a really interesting point in your talk, which was you don't necessarily have to just like revolutionize everything about your life and your system every day. You can take small incremental steps to improve things that can be really impactful. I agree. Yeah. You don't suddenly say, well, I need to exercise more. So I'm going to go to the gym every day. Right. Right. Like you say, I need to exercise more. I'm going to do the seven minute workout three times a week. Right. 
Right. Which was actually hard for me. <laughs> when I first started doing it, I had to put smiley stickers on the calendar for each day that I actually accomplished that. And so I set the goal the first year, many, a few years ago, to do it three times a week. And I actually barely made three times a week. Yeah. But the fact that I was able to do it at least once or twice a week, most weeks of that year, mm-hmm. was really empowering. It showed me that I could commit to something small, and I tried not to shame myself for not doing it, but just to celebrate when I did do it. And then the next year, I was able to increase my goal to three to five times a week. And now I've progressed in my sort of exercise routine, and the seven-minute workout is just my backup. When I'm traveling and I don't have equipment, I can do two or three circuits of the seven-minute. That takes 20 minutes, and mm-hmm. I'm, it's a workout. Yeah, and it's made a difference. It's totally made a difference. Yeah. There's a sense of autonomy and agency and self-efficacy and accomplishment you know, just from having done it. And I'm now FaceTiming with my friends if they want to do it at the same time. You know? Yeah. And it goes by faster and it's more fun. Which sort of gets to that same point, right? Like there are things we can personally do. We can exercise. We can make a point of like improving our sleep hygiene. Um, We can do that sort of work-life balance of trying to be more present at home in our relationships and work on our own mindfulness and, you know, the myriad ways that exist to do that, right? But there's a real value in doing that and feeling a sense of community as you try to sort of navigate these waters and not being that sort of lone wolf who's just kind of trying to do it all on your own. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think that uh, when I look back, and I'm so grateful that I'm in the place that I'm in, I'm doing the work that I do, and I'm totally happy doing it, it didn't come just because I was so great at everything. Mm -hmm. It's that I had mentors, I had teachers, I had family members, I have excellent friends, and I have a therapist, and I have a trainer, and I have a life coach. Yeah. You know, I've recruited this help to help hold me up so that I can go out and do this work and hopefully hold a bunch of other people up as well. And there's something that um, I realized recently. So I talk about the five reciprocal domains of self-care and health, right? So it's sleep, exercise, nutrition, stress management, and relationships. And for me, the hardest thing has always been the eating piece. Mm-hmm. I, I stress eat, I boredom eat, I am attracted to all things sugary and oily. They're good. They're so yeah. good. And so I get really, I feel really guilty and shameful when my eating habits start to go unhealthy. And then recently, through the help of my friends, I realized that it's because it's all connected, if I can really get control of my sleep and my exercise, which are much easier for me than controlling the eating, Mm -hmm. then the eating gets much easier. So if I'm well-rested and I'm moving my body regularly, feeling that sense of accomplishment and control over those areas, I actually feel more able to control the eating. Right. And so it's not... So where I spend all... Where I expend all this energy trying to control the eating is actually better spent protecting the things that I already do, you know, and maintaining those, keeping those tanks full so that the energy that I then need to spend controlling eating is less. Right. So you sort of play to your strengths and it helps the other stuff. Yes. And if somebody had told me that, I would have said, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. But it had, I feel like it had to come through my own (laughs) realization again that now I can own it and really sort of try and live it. Right. Because that's so, I mean, it's very easy to talk about 
burnout, right? Like you can say, oh, this job is really hard. I feel really down. Like that's an easy thing to say, but then the, the action that sort of follows it and like the real understanding that allows you to change your own behavior yeah. or to find that trick that's going to allow you to become more resilient. Or I think it's, it's hard. Right. System to help change the system. Right. And I think yeah. that is a huge challenge, right? How do we, particularly, I'll tell you, in surgery, right? It's not common to go to people higher up and be like, I am weak, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes. that's not how you oh, advance yeah. in the system. So how do we make burnout not seem like weakness? Yeah. You know, and I think you've done some of this work at, at Northwestern, right? How do you encourage systemic change and systemic support for these things that people have to do to be happy. It has to be multifactorial. There's a really, there are two books that I think were really helpful for me. One is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He is a moral psychologist. He used to be at UVA and now I think he's at NYU. He wrote this book describing sort of how we make decisions. There are a lot of books out there, Thinking Fast and Slow. I just heard of another one from one of our colleagues called uh, Predictably Irrational. Mm. So he describes the human decision-making machine as an elephant and a rider, Yeah. where the elephant is sort of your intuitive, emotional, limbic brain, and the rider is your your neocortex. And we think that the rider steers the elephant, mm-hmm. but it turns out that the elephant goes where it wants, right. and the rider just rationalizes the Justifies path. it, yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think, very important to understand that that's how we operate and to be aware of that. And then in the book Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, who are brothers and who are both behavioral economists, one at Stanford, one at Harvard. I can't remember. They were like made to stick. Made to stick is their other book. Mm -hmm. So this is their pattern. They take an idea from another author, like the they took the stickiness idea from Malcolm Gladwell's book in The Tipping Point, Mm -hmm. and they wrote about how to make things sticky. So they took Jonathan Haidt's idea of the elephant and the rider, and they wrote this book called Switch, which is all about behavior change, both at the organizational and the individual level. Mm-hmm. And they basically break it down into three steps. They say, direct the rider. So that means you have to have the evidence. You have to have the logical rationale to convince somebody that it's worth the investment in physician well-being. When you're talking to your leader, to come alongside them and say, hey, did you know that it costs over a million dollars if you have a full FTE physician role that's empty for a year? Did you know that when your physicians are well, your LT, your you know, Prescani scores go up and your... Um, your complications your out- go down. Complications go Outcomes get better. Yeah. You know, you have to have this rationale. So that's directing the rider. But then motivating the elephant, to me, is their second step. But to me, like, sort of the key and the biggest challenge, right? Because for any given person, what will motivate your elephant? I don't right. know. But what we know is that probably the the best way is to connect to that person, Right to make that person feel like you understand them, that they feel heard by you, and that there's something important to them that relates to what you're trying to change. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, if it's trying to eat healthier, why? What? What's the why? It's to role model for my kids. It's to, um, you know, twenty and thirty years from now to be strong old lady rather than frail old lady yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Right, so their process is direct the rider, motivate the elephant, and then shape the path. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about nutrition and we're department leaders trying to help our faculty and our trainees be healthier, should we have donuts or should we have fruit? Mm-hmm. Should we have you know, a social event that centers around alcohol or around ping pong? Right. You know? So it's, 
it's, you know, if I'm trying to avoid the Oreos and the ice cream and the, maybe I shouldn't do the grocery shopping. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that it's not in the house. Right. Like stuff like that. It's taking that same sort of small step incremental approach on the systems level that we do on the personal level. Yes. Right. And I guess like from my perspective, I say, well, it's fine for me to like try to incrementally improve my exercise, but I expect the system to completely revolutionize itself overnight to make me happier. Right. Like, and that's probably not fair. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Because there, there are those small things that could make a big, a big difference. Yeah. And I think, too, this is occurring to me as we talk, that when we sort of separate it into the individual factors and the system factors, yeah. that sets up, we're at risk for, for thinking of it in like a false dichotomy, mm. right? That it's either the individual or it's the system. Right. But really, there's an intimate sort of relationship between the individual and the system. Right. Right. And this is yeah. a this is systems a recent, are made up of individuals. Yes. Right? Yeah. And this is a recent revelation in this past year for me, as I, because my approach to physician well-being was initially very much in the personal resilience, individual sort of realm. Yeah. And then I, I was meeting more people and learning from people, and I heard more and more people say it's not the individual, it's not the it's the system, it's the system. I thought, oh, okay, it's the system. <laughs> and and then I thought, oh, I was I felt bad about myself for making it about individuals. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm totally on the wrong track. It's not about, I shouldn't be telling my colleagues that they should be practicing mindfulness. And then I think I sort of came to this sort of balance where, you know, it is the system and it's the individual because humans are at our best when we're lifelong learners, mm -hmm. when we're really, and nothing stays the same, right? If you're a parent, you understand that like how your kid was two weeks ago is not necessarily how they are today. And you have to adapt yeah. to the evolution of your family and the evolution of your body as we approach mm -hmm. menopause and, you know, old age. And so I think there is value in acquiring that skill set to be adaptive and resilient and agile, mm -hmm. you know, in not just our physical body, but our mental capacity and our emotional intelligence and our social intelligence. Right. You know, so I think that it's both. The ideal would be to be in a system that encourages individuals to be mindful and well-rested and nutritionally replete, right? Yes. Like the system, if the system's goals of having you happy are aligned with your personal responsibility to do the things you need to do to be happy, then then that's the ideal. That's that exactly sounds pretty right. good to me. Yeah, yeah, you should give a talk on that. <laughs> that's exactly, I'm, I will steal that from you. And I think this is, a, this is such a, a great and like incredibly important topic. And I just want to thank you so much for, for coming up to talk to us about it. I guess one parting question, I, you know, I expect just statistically, it is very likely there are some people listening to this podcast who are feeling really burned out, mm -hmm. um, who are feeling that sort of sense of hopelessness and lack of drive and who feel apathetic. Yeah. There's a sort of like level of, of sort of apathy, yeah. um, where you're, you feel as though you're a victim, yeah. victim. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, for the people who are in that space, who are feel like it's just, it's, it's, it's dark. Mm -hmm. Like what's the first thing to do? Like what's the first step? I guess the first step is awareness, Yeah. you know, like really getting really honest and, accepting that this is how we feel, right? I, you mentioned it, like, it's not uh, in our training or sometimes even in our personalities, you know, those of us who come to medicine, to admit that we feel sad or powerless or disconnected or lonely. Those are really triggering words. Mm -hmm. 
But one of the things that I learned in therapy, because I'm one of those people who used to think my feelings. Yeah. You know, I used to like analyze them. I still do. But I, that was my MO for, for coping with hard feelings, you know, difficult feeling emotions. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that I had to learn was to identify and just accept that I really do feel this way. And then, you know, acquiring the skills. Well, the one, the, what do I need? You know, and then looking back and saying, okay, so now that I understand that this is how I'm feeling, what do I know helps me? Mm -hmm. You know, so the coping skills or the coping mechanisms that Medscape um, elicited from physicians that many people exercise, many people talk to their friends and family, or they sleep. Those are the top three. Yeah. For me, before I really started to resume my physical activity, it was really connecting with friends. And I ask my patients all the time, like, how do you describe your emotional support network? Mm -hmm. You know, and what I am looking for when I ask that question is, do you have, even if it's just one or two, and often one or two is just enough, yeah. people whom you know you can trust, like just implicitly, yeah. where you know that in the event of some life crisis, like I'm so burned out at work, I can't cope. Right. You can reach out to them. And they will hear you and they will, they know you mm -hmm. and they will be there for you however you need, which includes honest, sometimes being honest with you and saying, Hey, you know, I think you might be depressed. Do you think you need to see a doctor? Or, you know, you've been in this situation for a long time. You've tried voicing you. Blah, blah, blah. Do you think you need to exit? Mm -hmm. You know? And so first is just allowing the feeling emotions right. are actually when we don't fight them, when we don't resist them, they come and go. Mm hmm you know, and so they, we don't have to be afraid of them. Right. Don't can, force yourself to, to not feel happy. Unhappy. must not yeah. be sad. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Sad is bad. Yeah. Um, so feeling the feeling and then looking back on how you already are coping. Mm -hmm. Well, you're holding it together. Most of us hold it together so well. And then recruiting the help that you need, I think is really important. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you again so much for, for coming up. Your, your whole talk was amazing and will be available linked off the website. Um, we'll link to the, the books you mentioned as well. And um, what, a, what a great resource. Thank you again. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with surgical power couple Drs. Caprice Greenberg and Jake Greenberg. They both teach here at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and have made gender equality within the surgical community a focus of their work. We discuss everything from pay gaps to parental leave, if you enjoyed our June podcast about women in surgery with Drs. Pitt and Logie, you definitely won't want to miss this one. Talk to you soon. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon.
Ganze 